You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. This is the third week in our sermon series that we're doing on spiritual renewal. As I said, we're using John Piper's definition for renewal or revival to help us understand what exactly it is that we're talking about. Uh, He said that revival is God doing among many Christians at the same time what he is doing all the time in individual Christians' lives as people get saved and individually renewed around the world. So renewal, restoration, revival, those are all just interchangeable words speaking about the same reality. God is in the business of both saving and sanctifying the souls of individuals. And so spiritual renewal or revival is simply God doing what he is always doing, just on a much bigger or broader scale in the life of a church or a community. So the first week we looked at Second Chronicles chapter 7 at the dedication of Solomon's temple. And uh, we saw a general pattern for renewal that you see all throughout Scripture, Uh, if God's people are faithful to humble themselves and to pray and repent, then the Lord may, in his mercy and grace, respond by reviving his people. Uh, Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 40, uh, which is a text that was given to God's people shortly uh, before they were taken away into uh, exile uh, in Babylon And we saw the importance of trusting in the Lord as we wait during uh, difficult and dark times when revival seems like it is far, far away. And now we're going to jump forward in the biblical timeline again to Nehemiah chapter 8, where we witness the return of God's people back to the promised land now that their wait is finally over. And through the process of their return, we'll see God's people entering into yet another season of renewal and hope. And then next week, we're going to wrap up the series with a final text uh, to see what revival and renewal looks like in the New Testament. Uh, We'll be looking at Acts chapter 3, at Peter's sermon uh, at Pentecost. So all four weeks, we're looking at different texts, but I hope you see that they're all the same theme. So let me go ahead and read Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 1 through 12. uh, And let me badly pronounce a bunch of Hebrew names. uh, And then let us see what the Lord has to show us. So hear from the word of the Lord. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform uh, that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, 
uh, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on the right side, and Padiah, Michelle, uh, Malachijah, Hashem, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshelam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all of the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, uh, Shephthiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said all, to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was a missionary in the Middle East, um, I worked as an English teacher as part of my day job. And one day after school, I was talking with my students and the topic of religion came up, uh, which was a very common topic that often came up. And one of my students claimed that she could convince me beyond a shadow of a doubt that Islam was the one true religion and the Quran was the word of God and not the Bible. And so let me give to you her argument. Uh, let's see how it sounds to you. Who knows? Maybe we will all walk away Muslims today. Uh, but she told me a story about a friend of a friend, which seems to always be how these stories go. Uh, they never happen directly to you. It's always something that you just heard about that happened to somebody else. You just, you just overheard it. But apparently there was a young man who was disabled. Uh, he had a very difficult time walking or using his legs. He was pretty much wheelchair bound. Um, and of course he had tried you know, all kinds of therapy and pretty much every kind of rehab that was out there. Uh, he'd had several surgeries, but nothing from the world of science seemed to offer any kind of cure. So finally, a local imam, uh, which is like a Muslim pastor or a priest, he came to visit. Uh, he looked at this man's crippled legs, and after a moment of pondering, uh, he did something which is going to sound a little weird, uh, but he asked for a copy of the Quran and a jar of honey. 
Uh, and as weird as they, that may sound, he unscrewed the lid off the jar and he read a select portion of, of verses or scripture uh, into this jar of honey uh, and infused the, the honey with the Quran. And then he took a bunch of that honey and he smeared it all over the guy's legs Uh, And supposedly, suddenly, this man was able to walk again. Supposedly, his legs were restored instantly on the spot, and, you know, he was was able to get up. Um, And, of course, my students were just looking at me the entire time I was being told that story to see how I was going to respond to it. Um, I think many of them actually assumed that that maybe I would convert uh, to be a, a Muslim right there on the spot, um, obviously, the fact that I am a pastor standing here in a church, um, that should be a clear indicator that the story didn't have that much effect on me. Uh, but it was really revealing when it came to the view that many Muslims have about the word of God, or at least what they would argue is the word of God. They saw it almost as kind of like a magical formula, You know, as long as you could just get the right verses of the Quran to say and the right clergy to read those verses, well, then you're just pretty much guaranteed to perform any kind of miracle you want. Obviously, this is very problematic, uh, but this isn't a problem that is just isolated to Islam because Christians can also have some very wrong and questionable views about the word of God, too. For example, there are many Christians who undervalue the Bible. They treat it almost as you would a cup of coffee. It's really nothing more than just kind of a a quick pick-me-up that you have in the morning uh, before you leave for work. You just have to read a single verse or two, and then you're you're good to go, because the main purpose is is really just to give you a little jolt of energy and to, to boost your mood for a bit before you go and start your day. Then at the other end of the extreme, you also have Christians who end up with a a view of the Bible that's not that different uh, to some of our Muslim friends. Uh, When I was growing up, I heard about a couple that was in a bad uh, car accident, and I knew the couple well enough to know that uh, they weren't particularly religious, Uh, but apparently a Bible was found on the dashboard of their car, So even though the car itself was totaled, this couple walked away without a scratch. Um, And so the talk of many Christians in the community was that the Bible had saved their lives. God protected them because they had the word of God inside their car. And I would agree that what happened that day certainly was a miracle, but their safety wasn't guaranteed by the sheer chance that they happened to have a Bible with them. They weren't saved because of a book. They were saved by the grace of God. So so even Christians can have wrong and very distorted views of the word of God. And so that raises a question for us as a church, for those of us who highly revere and love the Bible, which I hope is every one of us in this room, How should we understand it? What place does it have in our lives? 
especially when it comes about bring, to coming up, especially when it comes to bringing about spiritual renewal in our own souls and maybe even revival to our church and to our community. That's a question we see answered in Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you're a note taker, I always like to give you the opportunity to write down either the main idea, the main points of a passage to kind of help us understand the text better as we go. Uh, So if you're taking notes, I would summarize these verses like, like this. I think that this passage shows you that the word of God can be a great source or it can be a source of great joy, but never before it's the source of great grieving. Let me say that again. The word of God can be a source of great joy, but never before it's the source of great grieving. So let's walk through this passage uh, and see how the word of God gives us both of these things, both great joy and great grieving. Since we haven't been uh, camping out in Nehemiah, we are going to need some context to understand what is going on here. So let me start there with some of the background behind this story. Uh, But after the fall of both Israel and Judah, the people of God were in exile for 70 years in Babylon. But eventually, even the nation of Babylon fell, uh, and they were conquered by the Persians and by a king named Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great was the one who finally permitted the Jews back to their homeland. And that story, it's well documented if you want to read it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And God's people returning home, it would have been a lot like the soldiers returning to their home countries after World War II had decimated the landscape of so much of Europe and Japan. Uh, Many of the soldiers who fought on either side of the war, they didn't have much of a home country to return back to. Their home cities had all but been leveled by the bombs of the enemies. The Israelites returning home would have been a lot like what life uh, will be like for those refugees who have recently fled from Ukraine. Those refugees that have fled from Ukraine, they left their homes, but for many of them, they're not going to have homes to return back to. It's simply going to be a pile of rocks and rubble. So the Israelites came back to a very decimated land, And particularly their capital, Jerusalem, lay in absolute ruins. That there wasn't much left at all. So overseeing the rebuilding of the city were several men. You had Zerubbabel who helped rebuild the temple. uh, And Nehemiah who helped rebuild the city's walls for protection. Um, And then there's a man named Ezra who helped reestablish the priesthood uh, and helped Uh, reinvigorate the the worship of Yahweh. So by the time you arrive to Nehemiah chapter 8, the first few waves of refugees have already returned. uh, And what we see is Ezra is calling them to assemble as God's people. He's calling them to, to come and gather together. And at the very beginning of the chapter, we're told that they gathered 
not at the temple, which is where you might expect them to go, but instead they go to a place called the Water Gate. So they're standing out in the open air near one of the main entrances of the city where water was brought in to the city. Um, and, and at least part of the reason for this is only men would have been permitted to enter into most parts of the temple uh, or in, into the, the, the temple itself. And only the priests would have been able to enter into the innermost parts of the temple. So, so gathering out here in the open would mean that all the people, both the men and the women, um, and even those present who weren't descendants of Abraham, you know, even those who weren't Jews could gather and hear from Ezra. And we read in this chapter that there's a special uh, wooden platform that was built for the occasion. Uh, and then Ezra, he reads the book of the law, uh, which is the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it took him from sunup to midday to read it all. But we're told that the people listened attentively as he did. And then I find it even more interesting that when you think about these people coming back from Babylon, most of those that are listening to this wouldn't have spoken Hebrew anymore at least not as their first language. All those who grew up in exile would have grown up speaking Aramaic. So most of them wouldn't have even been able to understand the words that Ezra spoke to them. So we're told in verses 7 and 8 that there are others that are there that are translating it and helping them to make sense of what he is saying. And just uh, as an aside, in case you're wondering... Um, these events they actually are taking place a, about a thousand years after the life of Moses and when those first five books of the Bible would have been written down. So a man is standing on a platform kind of like this, and he is reading from an ancient book of the Bible, you know, called what we would call the Bible. He's reading from an ancient book that was written in a different language like this. Um, and he's having to explain what it means in the language of the people like me. And in response, you hear all of the people shouting, Amen. So I don't know what this sounds like to you, but to me, it sounds like these people have gathered for church. They have gathered to do exactly what we gather to do each and every Sunday morning. They, they gathered to read from the word of God in order that they might directly hear from the mouth of God. I mean, God's people are falling on their faces. They're bowing down to worship the Lord. They are rejoicing even in the midst of this rubble. I mean, there are no walls left in Jerusalem. The buildings are decrepit. They're falling apart. Um, they're not even inside the temple that had just been built. But they don't need the beauty of God's temple because they have a beauty that far surpasses that. They are encountering the beauty of God's word. Christians in churches today, so often we, we struggle 
to even hear a pastor talk about the Bible for 30 minutes. If you pass that 30-minute mark, people will start to look at their watches, their stomachs will start to growl, they'll begin to think about lunch. Um, this, is, this is just an aside, but this is a, a true story. Um, I was actually once turned down as a pastoral candidate at a church because I refused to limit my sermons to 15 minutes. This, this church didn't want to call any pastor that would preach for more than 15 minutes. That is the sad state of our modern attention span. But Ezra's congregation listened to God's word for hours and hours on end, and it brought rejoicing. Not boredom, not exhaustion, it brought exaltation. So if we want to see a a spiritual renewal happen in our lives or even revival brought to our churches, this is as close to a silver bullet as we are ever going to find. Money will not suffice in building God's kingdom. Clinging to our traditions, it's not going to offer any help. Just adding more programs is not going to be enough. Um, At the source of everything that, that we do at the core has to be the Bible. We we must trust the Bible. We must learn to love the Bible. We need to get excited every time we see somebody holding up the Bible and opening it to read. That and that alone has the potential to bring about an outpouring of God's grace. But after having said all of that, there is a a caveat we need to understand. uh, Because as I said in the beginning... The word of God can be a source of great joy, but never before it's the source of great grieving. In the middle of this text, we have to deal with verse 9. The people of God had listened um, attentively all morning to his word. They were even shouting out some amens. But then when all was done and the five books of Moses were read, what, what do we see happen? We're told that Nehemiah and Ezra, they have to say to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, many of those uh, gathered together that day had never heard God's word read to them before. And in fact, there were many parts of of Israel's history where God's words were just totally lost and absolutely abandoned. Uh, For example, during the reign of King Josiah, if you know that story, the, the scrolls containing God's word were tucked away on a shelf somewhere just collecting dust. And not even the high priest knew where they were. The situation actually became so dire at one point uh, that it was easier to find the temple prostitutes that roamed throughout God's temple in Jerusalem. It was easier to find them than to find a copy of Scripture. You, You know you're in a bad situation when it is easier to find prostitutes, and prostitutes are more prevalent than God's word. 
So, so having this opportunity that the people have to hear directly from uh, the creator of the universe and, and getting to hear his words spoken directly to them, especially when so many of them had never heard much, if, if any, of it. I mean, you, you would think that this would be a time for great rejoicing, but instead the people are weeping. They started off celebrating, but they end crying. And it's impossible to know what passage uh, specifically caused this weeping. I mean, but if you scan through the books of Moses, it's easy enough to take some guesses. The people likely wept because for perhaps the first time they, they heard the tragedy that befell their ancestors, Adam and Eve, and how they were deceived into sin by the enemy, convincing them to eat of the forbidden fruit of the garden. Or perhaps the people wept because the evils of man were only multiplied from there until the Lord himself was even grieved that he ever made man in the first place. And so he had to pour down his wrath on humanity in the form of a tragic flood to try to wash away the stench of sin that was spreading all across the globe. Maybe the people wept because of all the failed leaders that were sent to God's people but still couldn't save them. Noah turned out to be a drunkard. Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer. Or maybe it was because of just the the unbearable weight of God's law. Maybe that's what caused the weeping to begin. Hearing God's holy standards and knowing that they could never live up to it on their own. But whatever it was, it it turned this day that was intended for celebration into a, a time of solemn mourning. Eventually, the people were able to go on their way to eat and drink, but only after the priest calmed them down. But before there could be any more rejoicing and and celebrating, before there could be any more joy, there at least needed to be this moment of grief. And, And church, I wonder if any of you have ever personally experienced this in your own life. I mean, there is certainly much in the Bible that is worth rejoicing over, that can be a cause of encouragement, that should put a smile on your face. But let me ask you, has the Bible ever brought weeping into your life? Have you ever curled up in the corner and bawled because you read God's word and you realize just how egregiously you have offended a holy God? Have you ever read about Christ walking to the cross to pay for the penalty of your sin? And you just had to stop for a moment because the tears were welling up in your eyes and it was making it difficult to continue to see the pages. If that has never been your personal experience, let me suggest to you that you are actually missing out on the greatest joy that the Bible has to offer. Because before you can rejoice greatly at the thought of salvation, you must weep bitterly at the thought of your sin. 
It is not enough just to believe in God. It is not enough to believe that the Bible is God's word. It is not enough to to try to follow God by living a good and moral life. You must look squarely at your sin that is in your life and at all of the ways that you have failed to live up to God's standards because of the ways that you have lied and cheated, because of all the ways that you have harbored anger in your heart and all of the ways that you have wrongly treated those around you, you must look sin square in the face and weep. You must cry because you have failed to live up to the holy standards of God and then cry out to Jesus because only in doing so can Jesus wipe away both your sin and your tears. And only through submitting to his lordship and by acknowledging what he did at the cross on your behalf, only then will you be able to discover the greatest joy the Bible actually has to offer the joy of salvation. It's a wonderfully great joy, but it can only come after great grieving and mourning for your sin. So God's word uh, doesn't function like many of our Muslim friends would have you believe. Um, It's not a magic formula. You can't manipulate it for your own Uh, purposes. Uh, Neither is it just another form of encouragement to sip on uh, before you go to work. Um, It is so much more than that. When you see God's word at work, you'll, you'll realize that it is the source of great joy, but never before it's the source of great grieving. It is sufficient by itself to bring out revival and spiritual, you know, a spiritual revolution in this church. But until it teaches us to have a revulsion of our sin, that revolution is never going to come about. Let me pray. Father, uh, we, just, we just thank you for the Bible I thank you for your word. Um, I pray that, it, that we would never, as a church, fail to give it the proper reverence that it deserves. Um, I pray that, that we would always just see it as our greatest source of nourishment uh, and, and the greatest way that we can connect to you. And I pray that, that we would just point every one of us in this room to the hope that can only be found in the death, uh, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the hope that we can have of of spending eternity in your presence. I ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.